I probably didn't need to give you a scripture to make you know that coveting is bad. It's, it's inconsistent with God's will for us or, or really for anybody. But I'm going to. And, and there's lots of them. It's interesting. It's the scripture that when, when the Apostle Paul, gosh, I can't remember what chapter. Maybe it's chapter 7. I can't remember. But in, in Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about the power of the law, right? The, the power of sin is the law. So when a person gets saved, their sin, Paul says, you're a, you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. Sin has no power over you anymore. And the reason for that is because you're not under the law. And he's talking about when he came to understand the law as a schoolmarm to teach us about sin, the, the example he uses was covetousness. And he said, before I knew the law, I didn't have a problem with covetousness. But once I understood it was against the law to covet, I covet everything. That's like me on a diet. When I'm on a diet, I, I can live without ice cream. When I'm on a diet, I have a law. All I think about is ice cream, if that's an analogy that works for you. But, but coveting is it's a, really, it's a really powerful sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9 and 10, we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So all of those things are examples of unrighteousness. And I, I want to make sure that I qualify that scripture. If you ever struggle with covetousness, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to go to heaven. It's a sign for a person whose life is covetous, whose life uh, includes the practice of sin. The instance of coveting something does not deny you heaven. But if coveting is part of your life on a regular basis, then it's an indication that you, you don't belong to Jesus. And that's a, that's a great teaching out of 1 John. If you, if you want to get some depth in that, read 1 John. It's only five chapters, and you'll get a, a good perspective on that. But the covetous, those that are actually covetous people, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It means they, they can't go to heaven. They're going to go to hell if they're covetous. And, and it's in these lists that you see in different places through the New Testament that describes certain behaviors that are just absolutely incompatible with a Christian. Let me read from you then now Luke chapter 12. I'm going to get to, I'm going to, get to my answer in a second to the homework question, but I want, to, I want to couch it with some scripture first. I'm going to read to you uh, Luke chapter 12 from verse 13 all the way through verse 34, but I'm going to stop and insert some other things in the middle. So we're going to go right now uh, with 13 through 15. And let me just say, too, that um, the Greek word that's translated to covetousness can also and is also translated to greed. And if you look in the thesaurus, you'll see that uh, that covetousness and greed are synonymous. They can be used semi-well uh, interchangeably. 
So in this particular set of scriptures, you won't hear the word covetousness, but you'll hear the word greed, and it implies the same thing. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed or covetousness, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. One of the issues that we have with worldly greed or worldly covetousness is it gets us to a place where we start to measure ourselves by our possessions. Somebody's better than me because they have a better car than me or a more expensive house than me or they can wear more expensive clothes than me. And can I just tell you, how much did you pay for that dress last night that you wore to the wedding reception? Was it like five bucks? Three dollars, <laughs> which was her homecoming dress, except the wedding came at the same night as homecoming and she chose to go to the wedding instead of the homecoming dance. Three bucks. Now, if you have Facebook, sooner or later you're going to see a picture of Annika in her $3 dress. And the first thing you're going to think is not, wow, that's a $3 dress. It's a $1,000 dress on a million-dollar daughter. <laughs> the point is, if, if she struggled with covetousness, she'd be concerned for what are the other girls going to wear? They spend more money than me. Instead of letting her beauty shine from the inside out, and whatever the heck you put on is whatever the heck you put on, and if it's three bucks at Salvation Army or three thousand bucks, it's not what determines your beauty. And, and, and if you're, we're not careful, then we'll start to be shaped by those things that people have that we don't have. And either we will chase after the wrong thing, or we'll never see ourselves the way we are because we'll see ourselves as lacking. Heather, good, very good. Your, yours was very excellent too. I think they're both right on. Okay, so. The abundance of what we have does not define our lives. Our lives as Christians are defined by who has us and who we have, right? We have the entire kingdom of God as our inheritance. All of the inheritance that's in Jesus Christ is in us. The, the world doesn't have that, so all that they can hunger and thirst for is the world. For us to hunger and thirst from the world is, is kind of like what Heather said, is to, is to deny that what God's given us is enough. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed or covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. So, so here we have uh, Karen's answer in that when we practice covetousness or we practice greed, we're literally establishing idols before ourselves that we're placing above our value for God. <laughs> it's interesting. My answer was both of your answers. It really was. So forgive me, you've given them, but I want to expound on them just a little bit. The Lord made us. Steve, you're killing me back there. there you go. Steve's like this. Is Either I got to move. There we go. You're good. Now, now Steve's neck can be straight. He's going to get on the airplane and go back to California someday, and the guy next to him is going to say, get your head off my shoulder. He, he's going to say, I can't. It's stuck over there because where the pastor was sitting on Sunday. All right. 
God, he created us. He literally created us. He didn't just manufacture our physical bodies. He created our very person. Every person is different. We, you know, we talk about on a snowy day, and you, know, you might get three feet of snow on the ground over a huge wide area, and God is so creative that no two snowflakes is exactly the same. They're different because he's that creative. He doesn't have to replicate a snowflake because he's not big enough to think of a, a, a beautiful crystal that's different than every other beautiful crystal that he's ever made. And that's true for every single human being. When the scriptures talk about God before the foundations of this world, thinking more thoughts about any individual person than there are grains of sand on the earth, it's how you make individuals individual. There's no cookie cutter. Everybody is different. He, he was so specific in his design of each and every person that he knows exactly exactly what each and every person requires. He knows what will bless us, and he knows what will curse us. And sometimes those things that we think would be a blessing wouldn't be a blessing. They'd be a curse to us. So when we covet, it tells, a, it tells God that we don't trust him. We don't trust you. I have to have a better job and make more money, God, because this job that you've given me doesn't provide like my neighbor's job provides for him. We say, Lord... You haven't given me enough, but yet he's given us everything, and he prescribes everything that we need. Paul said that I can be content in all circumstances. Paul, the apostle, right, he had, he had experienced great abundance, and he had experienced being in the urine-soaked floor of the basement of the worst, dingiest, stinky jails. And he was content with no matter what his circumstances were because he knew that this life is but a vapor, right, and a cold day. And, and, and it's there and then it's gone just that fast. That's the way Scripture describes the term, the time of this mortal experience compared to all of eternity. So when we choose to covet, we say, God, you're not good enough. But when we choose not to covet, it's amazing what we get to see. When we don't concern ourselves. I, last night, um, <laughs> there's no Luther's here, no Tim's family here. I think it was Tim's grandpa. He must have told me 30 times last night that he plays golf with his pastor. And, and, and he, he kept talking to me and talking to me and asking questions. It was kind of fun to talk to him about the scriptures. And there was another guy that moved up to Cadillac because uh, his pastor down here told him or told people that anybody that can go up there, go up there and help this church that's in Cadillac. And, and he was telling me about his church. And there was another guy telling me about his church. And he, he came up to me to say goodbye as they were leaving the reception last night. I, I wish I could remember. I, I don't remember what was the catalyst for the conversation. But I said, you know, oh, he said he had been here maybe for a wedding shower or something. You know, he said, nice church and whatever. And I said, it is a nice church. And somehow I mentioned to him, he said something. I said, we've never had one penny of debt in our church. We don't covet fancy stuff, right? I mean, you do see the fancy fence we built out here for the parking thing, huh? Huh? How about that? That's pretty special. We're anticipating that, you know, we might have a few extra cars to park, and we wanted to add some organization to the parking lot. But we've never, ever coveted except for that which the Lord would give us. 
We don't think about the money. We don't talk about the money. And I told him, that's just how we are. We just, whatever the Lord blesses us with, we're happy with it. And we know whatever we need, he's going to provide for us. And we have never, ever, even this whole property, 10 acres of land, a church building, a house, the outbuilding with the garage and the joy house was given to us for free. The chairs you're sitting in, somebody called me up before we, just before we moved in here. We were still, you know, remodeling and cleaning up and everything. Hey, you guys have any need for chairs? Like, well, we don't have any. I was thinking of stackable plastic chairs. Seriously, that's what I figured. We'll, we'll just buy some stackable plastic chairs. And he said, well, we got all these chairs. We inherited a church building, and they got brand new chairs, and all these things have hardly even been used. If you want them, you can have them. The chairs were free. I mean, honestly, it's awesome, right? And he said, wow. He said, our church, I got the impression it was kind of big, but he said, our church owes money to everybody, that we are so deep in debt that we may have to just liquidate the church and shut down because we can't pay our bills. Every week we're having to try to figure out how we're going to pay our bills. I don't know if that's from covetousness or not. You go to the Rock Church. I know Pastor Wes a little bit. And um, the Rock Church uh, is thriving numerically. It's a huge church. You know, when, when we were at the Lake Fenton High School, matter of fact, we used the ropes from Lake Fenton High School that we, that we blocked off, you know, parts of the big auditorium so that there wouldn't be like one person way up there and another one over here. At least, you know, we're kind of together. We rope places off. Well, those ropes are now the parking lot blocker offer things, right? But they're over there for multiple services, and there's almost 700 seats in that auditorium. And I remember somebody telling me that they have that property across the street, and they're going to build a church big enough that everybody can fit in, but not until they have all the money to pay for it. Because Pastor West is not going to be a slave to debt. He's not going to have himself up there on Sundays preaching, hey, listen, you know, you need to tithe again because we can't pay the mortgage on our big fancy building. He doesn't covet he just needs a place to park the church where everybody can sit together like we have, right? So anyway, it's important that we don't covet because it tells God that we're not satisfied with what he's provided for us. Everything that we have, we should be very satisfied and, and not be covetous at all. And, and I'll touch on some of that again in a minute. So let's go back to Luke chapter 12. Now we're at verse 16. And he, again, Jesus speaking, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And it's an interesting phrase, the way that Jesus says that, so is the man. What he means is, so is the man foolish who stores up for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's this man who coveted, who, who was greedy, and he, he built up and built up. Maybe he had a business, you know, and he had all this stuff, and he had so much stuff that his barns weren't big enough. So he, he tore them down, and he built big barns so that he could then just relax and have fun, eat, drink, and be merry. And that very day, his life was required of him, and he had nothing eternal to show for his life. He was foolish. Verse 22 
Oh, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is an interesting, and 1 Corinthians speaks to this um, in a couple of different places. Foolishness. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. If you were to read earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the wisdom of the wise and, and their wisdom. They can't even um, receive the things of, the, of God because they're spiritual matters. So here he's talking about don't be deceived, right? You have friends that aren't Christians, and they may have stuff that you don't have, but God despises the wisdom of this world, right? It's, it's the wisdom of the world. When, when I left HP, I, was, um, I had a great job. I was good at it, or you know, maybe God was blessing me at it, but I'd done very well. 5% of the workforce at HP could be, you rated 5, 4, 3, 2. You couldn't be really rated 1 because you were already fired before you could be a 1. But they had a forced distribution, so if everybody was outstanding, only 5% were allowed to be in the category of number 5. And then you know, a larger percentage in number 4, and then a bigger percentage in number 3. And anybody that was in number 2 had to be on a performance enhancement plan. It's kind of how they turned over the, what they would consider the low end of their performers in the company and brought new people in, always competing to be in that number 5. Now, if you know my testimony, I was working 65, 70 hours a week. And uh, I spoke to the Lord. I was terrified I was going to lose my job because I was a guy with no college education making really serious money in a very competitive job environment with people that all had master's degrees from Stanford. No, no ability to replace that, that kind of income. And the Lord spoke to me through Matthew 6.33 that I'm going to read to you later. And he said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I, I actually believed him. I think he touched me with an anointing to be able to believe that that was true. And I said, Lord, then I, I will go from 65 hours a week to 40. Because I think I'm, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be, give them back, give, give me a nice wage. I should give them an honest return for their wage. And the rest of this time I'll spend seeking your kingdom and your righteousness. And all that time when I took that back, I continued to be rated a five at HP. Why was that? Because God was responsible for me, not me. And honestly, even if I had the Stanford education, I wasn't going to be the smartest one in that batch. I'm just not. I'm just Pat, you know. That I think the Lord had his hand on the thing even before I knew the Lord. So we could get to the place where we could be here. Because this is where he had for us all along. The point is, people thought I was cuckoo crazy out of my mind. Who walks away from a $200,000 plus a year job to zero? <laughs> All right, any one of you that's thinking I am nutsy cuckoo, that's worldly wisdom. That, yeah, it would be. And you know what else, though? It wasn't even hard. And we didn't even know what we were going to do. We didn't know this. We did this because we figured somebody else heard from God until we actually felt the calling and the and the vision for the church. The point is, covetousness would have never allowed that to happen. I mean, it almost kind of did, because that was sort of why I was praying when he showed me Matthew 6.33, was because we had thirty five or 600 square foot house on the lake, five bedrooms, boats, you know, all this stuff. And we don't now. 
And we had a company car, every year brand new, and a gas card. Now, if I miss anything, I think that that's kind of what I miss. That's kind of, and a pretty unlimited expense account. But this isn't supposed to be part of the sermon. I never even thought about telling you that story. But the point is that, that coming here and doing this was wisdom. And can I just tell you, even when you get to be a five, because God is filling your order bucket up so that you're over quota, so that you can make that kind of money, it, it, and it was good. I thought, hey, I, I never felt like selling computers wasn't an important thing. People need computers, right? But there's no satisfaction in that, like the satisfaction that I have. Now, if somebody else is selling computers, they can have equal satisfaction with me because maybe that's where God's got them. But for me, I would rather make a little bit of money and get the satisfaction I get from participating with all of you and bringing forth God's kingdom than the before thing. A million times over, a million times over, seriously. Yeah, oh yeah, well yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't even know what it meant to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, you know? So I said, God, I'm just going to, I'm telling you I'm doing it, you'll have to figure out how to get me to do it because I don't even know what it means. I do now, I think I have a better understanding now. But not the same. Nope. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the people that would be competing with me for that number five was second runner-up Miss America. So you know she was a pretty sharp cookie, and God let her stand behind me in line. <laughs> okay, enough of that silliness. But the world's wisdom, God makes it foolishness. And, and those that chase effort, effort, after the wisdom of the world are ultimately going to be shown to be fools. It might not happen today. It might not happen tomorrow. They might die in their worldly wisdom and then find out that it was foolishness. Continuing on in Luke, verse 22, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? You hear what he's saying? He's trying to establish a mindset right now. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Just soak that one in for one second. You really need to soak it in. Because we're pressing in for things that the Bible indicates that God wants to do, and we're not seeing them. We could fall into, this has nothing to do with covetousness, but we could fall into a, into a false state of understanding that he doesn't really want us to possess the kingdom. But there it is right there in the scripture, that, that it, he wants to gladly give us the kingdom. 
and we say amen, and we would love to gladly receive the kingdom. And we will continue to press in and believe that his word is true, and the kingdom will manifest because his word is true. Amen? Amen. All right. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, for an unfailing... Excuse me, let me start that again. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we allow ourselves to covet, then, then that which we covet will begin to own our hearts. And our hearts won't be after the things of the Lord. And we'll seek that earthly wisdom that will satisfy us for the vapor time, but it brings us nothing in eternity. Even if it didn't cost us an eternal relationship with God, we could get to God through heaven and have everything that we've been done burned up like wood, hay, and stubble and have nothing glorious to offer the Lord at his feet. So the sister verse to what you just heard in Luke 12 is in Matthew chapter 6. And I'm just going to read the beginning and the end because we got all the middle part from Luke. But it just, a, it just a, broadens the perspective. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Then, then he goes on to say all the things like, why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Why do you worry about where you're going to live? And he says, but seek first his, and he expands on this one, his kingdom and his righteousness in all these things will be added to you. So that's a promise from God. Was it Wednesday night where we talked about all his promises or yes and amen? Or was it last Sunday or... Maybe I, just, maybe I just had a conversation with somebody. But all God's promises are yes and amen. We sing that song, right? But it's in Christ Jesus. So there is a promise from God to any person that is in Christ Jesus, born again, saved person, is that if you will make God's business your first priority, then you don't have to concern yourself one bit with your business, that he'll take care of it. I have that testimony this church has that testimony. Now, somebody with worldly wisdom might say, what are you talking about? There's like 20 people in here, and you've got a gravel parking lot, and, and nobody would drive by and be impressed because nobody comes in here based upon us. They come in here based upon him, right? He'll send who he wants to be here, and he might have them come for a while, and then he needs them someplace else or wants them to be brought in someplace else. Somebody somewhere else, and he'll send them here. Our job is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Paul plants, Apollos waters, God brings the growth. The growth may not look like a 1,000 people under this roof. The growth might look like 25 people that look like Jesus, and they're bringing about the kingdom in the ways that God has purposed for this part of his body to do. I don't concern myself with it. I really don't, not, not at all, <laughs> which is pretty evident by my outreach actions, right? I'm, I'm, I don't have an evangelist's heart. I have a pastor's heart. I, I, I want to see every person whole heart. And that's going to be, I think, how God draws people with us into his kingdom. They're going to come here, and they're going to get whole, whether it's a soulish torment they're dealing with or a physical torment they're dealing with. Certainly, if the, if the 
responsibility for their sin they're dealing with so they can get born again, right, and not be responsible for their sin anymore. That's the way he's going to use us. But he said you cannot serve two masters. You have to set your mind to trust in God. You have to set your mind that what he gives you is what's right for you. You have to set your mind that he is the one who's going to provide for you everything that you need. Remember when uh, Daniel Palmer, his boss, said, hey, you know, um, our part of the company is dissolving. And his boss was the owner of the company. And there were only two people in his part of the company. And Daniel's starting to connect the dots. Somebody's got to go. It's probably not going to be the owner, right? Daniel is a faithful guy. He probably would have worked there for 100 years if he lived another 100 years. And they laid him off. And when Jessica called me, my first prayer wasn't for Daniel to get a job. I never prayed for Daniel to get a job. My prayer was always that his faith wouldn't waver. Because, see, Daniel is seeking after God's kingdom and his righteousness. The job is not Daniel's problem. The job is God's problem. God owns everything. Everything is under his purveyance. And when the time was right, God provided Daniel with two jobs. So he had to pray, which one should I take? Daniel's job pays more money. It's closer to home. And I think he said it has better benefits. And if you remember last week, he said they gave him an equal amount of vacation as he had at his other company versus. See, so Daniel never had to worry about his job. And if you're a Christian, you don't either. And the only reason you should ever worry about your job is if you worry about your job. The only reason you should ever worry about having food in your fridge is if you worry about having food in your fridge. Because once you take that ball out of God's hands into your own hand, now it's your problem, right? But if you leave it over there where it belongs, and your concern is never for your own needs, it's for what does the kingdom require of me? What does righteousness look like in my life? You don't have to worry about anything. You have no material needs if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We've got to set our minds because it's true. And we have testimonies. You guys are a perfect example. They, had the, they got this 40 acres. I mean, you want to talk about the outdoorsman's outdoorsman. You know, he, he'd, rather, he'd rather split wood than lay on the beach, you know, in March someplace. <laughs> in the snow, he'd rather split wood. And God gave it to him. But then he had a heart attack. But because of prayer, his heart attack aborted itself. When the ambulance gets there, if you don't know the story, when the ambulance gets there, like Patty, she called up. She's like, get people praying. Keith's having a heart attack. Told 911, sorry, can't talk to you. Got to get people praying. Hangs up on 911. You just get an ambulance over here. Ambulance gets there. Keith's like, I just get in. You don't need to put me on that thing. And they're, they're like, well, no, no. You really got to ride on the thing, sir. You're having a heart attack. Goes to the hospital, hook him up, check him out. When they finally, you know, have the conversation with him, the doctor scratches his head and says, I don't know what happened but your heart attack aborted itself. Absolutely no damage to his heart. Right? But generated a hospital bill. <laughs> so now, because God gave it to him, now he has a sense for why God gave it to him. And you got to know the property that they had, the house, the acres, the whole thing. God told Keith, that's yours. So Keith, he looked, he's like, I'll take it, Lord, right? He goes up to the door, tells the guy, hey, listen, want to sell your property? The guy says, no. He says, well, you're going to because God said it's going to be mine. <laughs> the guy says, well, I don't know what you're drinking, but I'm not selling my property. 
A little while comes by. You want to sell it? No, I don't want to sell it. A little while comes by. Hey, you still want to buy my property? Sure. It's this much. No. Nope. God said it's not that much. <laughs> but ultimately, it was what God said. And, and you got it for what God said you'd get it for. And then now you're able to sell it. All your debt gets paid off. Even the hospital lowered your hospital bill by half. And it's because you don't, he doesn't have to worry about it. He doesn't have to worry about it because it's God's job. His job is to seek after God's kingdom and his righteousness. And you're doing a great job. Seriously, you are. You are a beautiful picture of the righteousness of God. And there's not a person that can have a conversation without Keith that doesn't hear about the glory of God in his life. Seriously. Remember... Um, 10 months ago or whatever it was when the Lord stirred me personally and then used that to stir the church. And I said, Lord, where is it? Where's the power? Where is it in my own personal life? Where is it in the church? I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about this church. Where is it? He took me to 2 Corinthians. He says, I'm not holding anything back from you. It's your own affections that are restraining you. Covetousness is like that. I was coveting things that were restraining God's moving through me. It was his sincere desire to release his kingdom through me. But my affections were restraining them. Not God. He, he didn't want to hold anything back. My own affections. We have to be careful. See, when we start to covet, it, it starts to reveal our true affections. And, and if our affections are outside of God's kingdom and his righteousness, then we don't see his kingdom and his righteousness because we're living from um, impure affections. I don't know if impure is the best word, but it's a good word. You know, my affections were impure. And, and they were teensy little, I mean, things that, you know, generally you'd think, oh, you know, this and this and this. I'm just watching TV on Netflix, and there's particular scenes in there that were not holy. And I chose that over God. Until he finally, you know, punched me in the nose with Second Corinthians 6, which it was gentle, but it was, a, it was a pretty stern rebuke for me because I knew that I'd been kind of hiding my ears from the Lord. The treasures and the pleasures of the world are a trap. That's why everything, if you watch television, which, you know, if you cannot watch TV, that's pretty good. But if, if you watch television, if you watch a football game, look at the ads. Remember the TV show, Rich Styles of the Rich and Famous? Man, if that wasn't Satan trying to figure out how to get people to covet, I don't know what would be. Look at what they have. They're either going to make you angry or it's going to make you covet, one or the other, that somebody has something like that, that there's that kind of wealth in the world, that you would covet those things. I mean, really bad. The soil of our hearts is really, really important that we keep it good. Because uh, in this, the parable of the seed in the soil, that which God sows into the heart, the seed is the word of God. But if you look at it, what, it, what its bigger meaning is, it's revelation. Those scriptures say nothing is hidden except to be revealed. God wants to reveal his mysteries to us. He wants to reveal his mysteries to us so that the kingdom can advance, so that we can be blessed to know them. But bad soil doesn't cherish the revelation 
And then the revelation is like a lamp. Remember it says nobody lights a lamp, puts that revelation lights a lamp to hide it under a basket? You don't light a lamp and then hide the light. When, when, when a lamp gets lit, that's us. When he throws that seed into the soil of our hearts, it's to light something up that will then be shared and, and will benefit everybody. So you never take that seed. If that seed falls into the soil of a heart that would then hide the revelation, or, or, or even worse, doesn't even light up, it doesn't care. It's like hard soil. It's like rocky soil. It's like the soil that has the thorn bushes, remember? The worries of life and the desire for riches and pleasure choke the seed, and the, and the light never comes on because the soil was more concerned with those things. Scripture says that it's easier to pull a camel. Picture this. I think it's a literal thing it's saying. You know what a camel is, right? It's a big old humpy thing. And you know what the eye of a needle is like, like a sewing needle? He said it's easier to somehow pull that big camel through that tiny little eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Remember the story of the rich rich young ruler? Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I did. I kept them all since I was a kid. He said, well, there's one. Take all your possessions and sell them. Give the proceeds to poor people. Come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. He couldn't get that rich man, that camel, through the eye of that needle because he coveted his status. He coveted his wealth. All the things that all that brought to him, he coveted that more than he did eternal life. He came seeking eternal life. He chose that eternal life wasn't as valuable as his riches. If he's a real guy, I'm assuming he is. I, I don't, can't think that that was a parable. If that was an actual situation, then he's wishing he'd have made a different choice because it's never worth your eternity. No way. It's a trap. Okay, just quickly, and I'll, I'll get done. Matthew 5, 6. Let's talk about righteousness, God's righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think there's two senses of satisfaction here. Instead of coveting those things that are the world, right? Covet. I probably should pick a different word. Hunger and thirst for. Let's use that instead of covet in this context. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because, see, you pray in God's will, he's going to respond to that prayer. You say, Lord, I need love so I can love people the way that you do. Easy. He's going to answer that prayer because his very nature is love, and we're commanded to love one another. If we're lacking love, we ask God, he's going to give us love. Now, we have to choose to exercise it, right? But when you ask for things that are that directly centered in his will, you know you're going to get them. So one sense of satisfied in hunger and thirst for righteousness is that you'll gain righteousness. But the other sense of satisfaction is that you'll be righteous. You are righteous if you're born again in your standing before God. You are positionally righteous because when God looks at the Christian, the person who's actually responded to the gospel, given his life to Jesus as Lord, trusted in Jesus as Savior, sincerely in his heart, then what God sees, despite your behavior, is the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you from a relational perspective. 
But what this is talking about is not seeking salvation, but seeking righteousness in your life, that you would literally seek after hunger and thirst for being righteous, that all those things that don't look like Jesus would be cleansed out of you such that you would practice righteousness equal with your righteous standing so that you would be like the one who died for you, that the lamb would receive the reward for his suffering in your personal righteousness. So hunger and thirst. Let your most passionate hunger and thirst be for righteousness, and you'll be satisfied. First, because you'll become righteous, and second, because it's satisfying to live a righteous life. Um, Proverbs eleven twenty-eight and eleven thirty. So I'm skipping twenty-nine. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Verse thirty. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. So this 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 tree of life is the fruit of righteousness. Proverbs chapter three verses thirty-two and thirty-three. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright or the righteous. So when you all were praying for Teresa, I was sitting over here, guess what I was praying? I was praying for deeper and deeper and deeper levels of intimacy to know God. So now as God responds to my prayer for my wife, he's going to help her to find greater and greater levels of righteousness because he dwells with the righteous. That's, that's how we can draw him to us, right? Verse 33, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. You want your house blessed? Be about righteousness, and your house will be blessed. How do I know? Because it says right there in the scriptures. It's a statement of wisdom. Man, I can't, my house is a mess. Ah. Well, one of the places you might want to look is personal righteousness, especially if you're the head of the house, if you're the husband, because the biggest weight is on you. Now let's look at the kingdom. Remember, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? You can see huge blessing in desiring to be righteous. Now the kingdom. Romans fourteen seven. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of heaven in our context, in this you know, natural earth, is in the Holy Spirit. There's no kingdom outside of the Holy Spirit, but the kingdom is within us, I guess, in the person of the Holy Spirit emanating from us in righteousness, peace, and joy. So the kingdom is even tied to righteousness, right? You can't get into the kingdom without the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to you upon your confession of faith. And then the kingdom that we live is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. We should be seeking first his kingdom. The kingdom is a kingdom of power. Remember Jesus said, if you don't believe the words that I say, then believe on the works that I do, the powerful works that I do. I just noticed this. We're reading in Thursday morning, we're reading Hebrews. And it says, uh, in the beginning, God spoke to our fathers, right, the, the Jewish people, through the prophets. But now he speaks through his son. And then it talks about that those that heard first told 
those that the writer of Hebrews is one of these one of these those. If that doesn't get you confused, there's Jesus. He was incarnate on the earth, and he told those that walked with him. They told this group, which includes the writer of Hebrews. So they heard it firsthand. They heard it secondhand. But it's interesting. They said when they heard it from, now that would be like from Peter, James, John, you know, the initial disciples of Jesus, God confirmed with miracles, signs, and wonders, and with gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know that the first hearers heard it that way because we see it all through the Gospels, right? When Peter, James, John, Matthew, all those guys heard, they heard and saw the demonstration that Jesus made of the power of the kingdom of heaven. And now this generation that that heard it directly from Jesus is telling it to the next generation. and, And the writer of Hebrews is part of that generation. And he's mentioning how when they told us it came with all this power. And now here we are, back to the point kind of where Jesus was, where, where he said, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. And they said, no, you're not. You're just Jesus. He said, no, no, I'm the Messiah. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Okay, if you don't believe these words that I say, then believe on the works that I do. Second generation, same exact thing. We can see it right from the beginning of Hebrews. Now here we are, umpty thousand generations later, and we're primarily a church that's got nothing but words. But it says right there, The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. When the Corinthian church was being infiltrated by false teachers, they're like, you know, well, they're telling us this, and they're telling us that. Paul's like, eh, I'm going to come, and the way I'm going to examine them is not going to be the words that they speak, but the power that they demonstrate. Because if they are true apostles, they are true disciples of Jesus Christ, they will demonstrate the power of the kingdom alongside the words that they teach. I'm not interested in their words. I'm interested in their power. We have to be dedicated to demonstrate the gospel as we preach the gospel. When, when you go to Kenya, you're going to feel like if God doesn't show up in power, you might as well just die. Because you have not enough money to offer to meet the needs of you're going to see in Kenya, in those villages. And the lady who's got seven kids and she's got this little stick house with some mud and rocks around part of it. And, and, and I mean, the whole house isn't bigger than that part of the stage right there. And two-thirds of the house, the roof is just gone. So when the torrential rains and storms, her and her kids huddle in a little drippy corner that's not as bad as the part that has no roof at all. You don't have money to fix that problem. Well, you probably could for one house, but you don't for all the houses. What you're going to need is the power of God to deliver them into a place where they can have the contentment that Paul had in that prison when the rain is raining and they're sitting in that little house. You're going to be working so that those children can go to school because Salito's going to open a school because they can't afford to go to school. So they can't get ahead of themselves. So they're going to open a school over there. It's a dory trail. But seriously, we can talk until we're blue in the face. And some people respond to talk. Most of us are in the church because we respond to the talk. But some people do not respond to talk. They need to see. I don't believe in God. Well, if you can't do anything but talk about him, how are they going to believe in him? But if you can demonstrate him, they got no argument. Now, they might still not get saved, but can't be because they don't know at that point. Amen. That's why testimonies are. So the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. The kingdom. 
And then finally in Matthew chapter 6, you know, we know it is the Lord's Prayer. They asked him, they said, Jesus, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? And he said, sure. He started out, our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. So first thing you do when you pray is you just praise God for his holy name, that his name is set apart, it is holy, it is hallowed. And the very next thing, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're ever concerned, gosh, you know, here's a person who's, I don't know, sick, disabled, tormented, whatever, but is it God's will? All you have to do is picture yourself a vision in heaven and try to find that person that way in heaven. Try to find them sick in heaven. Try to find them tormented in heaven. Try to find them crippled in heaven. Try to find anything but perfection in heaven. Because if you can find it in heaven, then I think we could question what's God's will, and we could wait until he told us. But we know there's none of that in heaven. There's none of that in heaven. So it's easy. We know his will. His will is in heaven. And what's he told us to do? Pray on earth as it is in heaven. How do we get it that way? The kingdom is not a kingdom of words, but a kingdom of power. I have given you power and authority over all sickness and disease. That's Jesus speaking. Which sickness and which disease doesn't that cover? I mean, I'm not the guy who preaches all in the Greek is all, but I'm going to today. All equals all. It's all. Some, some disease doesn't bend. It's not because we don't have authority over it. It doesn't bend. It's not because we don't have the power to deal with it. There's other issues, but that's not God's will for that person to be sick. His will is that his kingdom would manifest on this earth as it was in heaven. He demonstrated with his son. He demonstrated with the first guys. He wants to demonstrate it with us today. What the heck has that got to do with covetousness? I don't know, but every message I have is going to end that way. <laughs> kind of it has everything to do with covetousness because if we don't covet that, and I, I mean, what I could use a better word, if we don't hunger and thirst for that, we're going to hunger and thirst for something. And if we, if we can get ourselves to the place where we're passionate, hunger and thirsting for that, but we don't have the perseverance that comes, remember what does James say? The testing of your faith develops perseverance. If we don't develop the perseverance and it doesn't come, we risk losing our passion for what God wants us to be passionate about. And then all of a sudden, Katie barred the door. We could be coveting something else. And then... We can get to that place where we got nothing to offer Jesus. So I guess then the question would be, where is your treasure? What is your treasure? Is your treasure for the kingdom and the righteousness of God? Do you cry out? I shouldn't even say you. Do we? Do we cry out for God's righteousness? Sometimes yes, maybe sometimes no. And, and, and I, I don't have all the answers yet. I mean, I, I'm, I'm working through this. My salvation with fear and trembling is as I walk with the Lord, trying to be more godly, more like Jesus. But we should be consciously seeking. Not because just the scripture says so. That's a great reason. But we should be sincerely seeking. That might be a better word. Not just doing it because God said we had to. If we're doing it because God said we had to, the first thing we should seek is a better relationship with God. Yeah, because the better we get to know Jesus... Nobody's going to have to tell us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. It will be our passion because we'll know him. 
So that's the question we should ask ourselves is, what, what am I really, really seeking after? What is the treasure of my heart? And, and if we find it to be anything but the righteousness of God and the manifestation of his kingdom, loving Jesus. You know what? This is another one. I'm sorry. I thought I was going to be quicker today. I'm, I'm a little quicker. But this keeps coming to me. I almost, I almost scrapped all four of them and wanted to talk about this one. Think about your, I don't know how many of you fasted. But everybody, unless you can't. I mean, there might be a legitimate reason why you can't. So I'm not painting with that broad a brush. Everybody needs to start to develop a lifestyle of fasting. If that means, you know, I can't even imagine it, then skip lunch one day. And skip lunch another day. And skip lunch another day. And then skip breakfast and lunch. And then skip. In fact, I had, um, I had someone text me. It was so cute. Pastor Pat, I really want to fast on Wednesday. I'm like, awesome. I don't know what to do. And I'm nervous. I said, okay. First thing? Don't eat. <laughs> Second thing, drink lots of water. Third thing, don't get too close to people. Your breath is going to be nasty. <laughs> I'm nervous. Don't be nervous. But I am. Can I call you? Yes. Don't be nervous. Why? Because God said that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace. It's on me right now. <laughs> but he gives grace to the humble. In the natural, do you want to fast? No. So what are you doing? I don't know. You're humbling yourself before God. You're seeing what he's asking you to do so that you might be a vessel to bring glory to him, that the lamb might receive the reward of his suffering, and he is going to pour grace on you, and it's going to be easy. I'm telling you, it's going to be easy. Okay. Next morning, I get a text. I did it! <laughs> It was just wonderful. Anyway, the point is, why did she do it? We're fasting because God is going to bring people here that can't get right without him, can't get whole, can't get healed, can't be made well. We don't even know those people. I mean, I wish I was the most you know loving guy in the world. I really do. But I don't love them that much in my flesh. If, if, if they don't get well, I'm never even going to see them. No skin off my butt. But I love Jesus. And when he puts them in front of me, he'll give me love for them. So think about, you're not fasting. I mean, it can't be a diet. That's a bad motivation, right? But you're not fasting for yourself. If it was up to you for you, you'd eat, if you're me, you'd eat 10 meals a day, right? You're doing it because you love. It's an expression of love. It's a sacrifice. No greater love has anyone but that they would give up their life for somebody else. That's more than just, you know, Guy's about to shoot your wife and you take the bullet. That's a great expression. That's giving your, your whole life. But to give your life in such a way that you would deny yourself food so that somebody you haven't even met yet because you love Jesus might get delivered from who knows what they got and the devil will be pushed back. It's a really, really wonderful expression of Christianity. All right. So don't covet food and fast. <laughs> Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are building up your church. And your word says that not, it says, uh, and I will something my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will establish. Is that right? Yeah. Jesus says, I will establish my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Father God, we thank you so much. 
they tried. The gates of hell showed up here last Sunday, and they did not prevail against it. We thank you, Lord, that it's your good pleasure to give us your kingdom. We ask that you help us to be excellent stewards of this opportunity that we have. You know, church, once ever we go to heaven, Kevin's mom, wonderful Christian lady, but her opportunity to please God by faith is over now. Now God is just blessing her in his presence, but our opportunity is now. So, Father, we pray that we would be good stewards, that we would not covet, and that every time that some shiny thing tries to go past our gaze, that your spirit would remind us that you have something better.